The scripture today comes from Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. You can follow along in your Bible or in the printed uh, worship guide. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus in the temple, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, He went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. All right, good morning. Most of you, I don't know, because this church just keeps growing, but I'm Jake, and uh, my wife, Julie, and I, and our two boys have been here from the beginning, (laughs) believe it or not. Other obligations have me away on most weekends, so I haven't had a chance to meet you, Uh, but it's a pleasure to meet you this morning. And I am fired up to talk about this passage today, because there's nothing I love more than a good story, and uh, there's nothing I love more than a crazy story. And if you were paying attention to what was just read to you, this is a crazy story. And what's true about the Bible is if you step back and really read some of the passages that we have in scriptures from the beginning to the end, man, it is full of stories that just make your eyes pop and like look to the left and the right, like what what is going on? You know, and this is one of those stories. And when we come to a story like this, what I like to do or to encourage folks that I'm, I'm leading in and through preaching or through a Bible study is don't read these stories as if you're a bystander. You know, as a reader, it's almost like you're a bystander watching a movie off to the side, but put yourself in these stories. Think about how you would be reacting if if you were there, if you were present, because there's so many wild things that are occurring in this passage that you really need to think as if you're there or you're gonna miss some important elements. And one way to try to, to do that is to try to connect to um, you know, moments in your life where you may have been in a similar situation. Because I think we've all been in situations where you know, there was this, like, this series of events that occurred, this chain of events, and all of a sudden you're so disoriented by what just happened, you just say to yourself or to other people that are around you like, hold on a minute, wait, what just happened? 
Like, what is going on? You know, you're trying to make sense of what's going on. Um, I had one of those moments when I was in college. I went overseas for a summer to do some ministry with college students, and we did do ministry, but there was a whole lot of shenanigans, right, that occurred. And so I had three roommates, and we had a targeted uh, arrival room, which was for females, and uh, we would do, pull these pranks in the middle of the night, right? And obviously, they got out of hand. There was a big blow up, and you know, a truce was called. Well, about two nights before we left, we went to a retreat center to sort of process and debrief what had occurred. And the shenanigans, from as far as we were concerned, had ended. But in the middle of the night, there's a knock at the door, and of course, we're disoriented. You know, the lights are off; it's dark. And one of my roommates gets up and opens the door. And I remember, you know, being disoriented by the fact that there's a knock at the door in the middle of the night. It's a little throws you off. But then I heard like the clanging sound of canisters, like clank, 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 clank in the room. And then I heard the hissing sound of some kind of substance being spewed out from these canisters. And then I felt something wet that was being sprayed from these canisters. And at that very moment, um, very loud music started playing outside of our window. So all this chain of events is occurring, we're disoriented, we're trying to stumble out of bed, turn the lights on, and when we turn the lights on, we see what's happening. And I don't know if you've ever done this, and I probably shouldn't tell you if you're a teenager because you're gonna try this, but here we go. If you take a bottle of sh- or can of shaving cream and puncture a hole at the bottom of it and hold your finger over it, and then you like throw it into a room, it spins out of control and all the shaving cream just sprays out everywhere. And so there were four canisters of shaving cream, and we were watching it spew all over the room, the ceiling, the wall, us, our beds, everything was covered in shaving cream. And at that very moment, we hear all this loud music, and we just turned the lights on, our eyes are trying to adjust, and when we open the curtains to see what's outside, it's our rivals, all four of them with their faces painted, doing a choreographed victory dance. (laughs) Now, all of this is happening so fast, like we can't even make sense of it, but we all just stood there, like looking at our hands, looking at our, each other, going, guys, what just happened? You know, and it wasn't until we had cleaned everything up that we started to process through what a brilliant prank that was. But it took us time to really like w- work through each step of the process. And in the story that we're looking at today, there is this crazy chain of events that occurs, Right? There's, a, there's a, a miraculous healing. That in and of itself should cause you to be disoriented, to look around and go, oh my goodness, what just happened? But then there's this other event where the crowd is, is so enthralled by what has occurred that they start worshiping two men as if they're gods. That's crazy. And then two people who are being worshiped Do the opposite of what you would think a normal person would do, who would usually embrace that and say, yes, this is wonderful, the crowd's worshiping me. They oppose it. And then the crowd that was so enthralled by them and were worshiping them, turn on them to the point where they even try to kill them. Y'all, that is crazy, the chain of events that occur. All these different things that happen in a short amount of time from a healing to the one who healed, or or, or who God healed through, is lying there close to being dead. And so, I hope you didn't come for a message that was gonna be intellectually stimulating today, or that's gonna like go real deep into theology. That's not the message today. 
This message is we're going to look at the story and we're going to try to understand the human behavior. Why did people react the way they reacted in the story? Because in doing that, I think it's going to tell us about ourselves and it's going to help us understand some principles that we really need to be applying to our lives. So today, let's just unpack this story together. And to do that, there's really four big movements in this story. There's scene one, which is the great healing. There's scene two, which is the crowd's response. There's scene three, which is Paul and Barnabas' response to the crowd. And then there's scene four, which is the crowd turning on Paul and Barnabas. Let me pray. Father, this is your word, and uh, it's true. And so I pray that you would help us to make sense of it and apply it to our lives, and that your spirit, Lord, would pierce our hearts with your truth. Amen. Well, you know, there's a miraculous healing. So to me, this story really should be about scene number one. It really should be about the power of God and his ability to heal, his ability to overcome any obstacle or challenge that may be placed in our paths. But quite honestly, I think the meat of the learning is through the human reaction because we're crazy, and that's the truth. We just tend to do things that um, I don't know why they shock us anymore because we just continue to repeat some of these same patterns of behavior over and over and over again. And, you know, this is the struggle. This is the struggle of, uh, for, for those of us who know Christ of being redeemed and having the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to enable us to do all this great good in the world, but at the same time still struggling through that process of becoming like him and doing things that we ought not to do, right? This, this is our story. This is the human condition for those of us who are believers. For those who don't know Christ, they're still wrestling with trying to understand truth. And so they're all the time doing things that, that are shocking to us and that are outside the bounds of what we think they should be doing. We're all in this together when it comes to the craziness of the human condition. So when you read this story, you know, the, the, the thing is not to, not to look at the crowd and think these people are nuts. It's to say, oh, I'm, I'm a part of the crowd. I could see myself doing that because reality is we could. So... What happens, though, is the reason that we can't, we really aren't going to focus on this major great thing that God has done is because we have the tendency to take our eyes off the things that God has done or the ability of God to do things and focus them on other areas. And so we should talk about the why behind we do that. Why do we do that? Why do we so easily take our eyes off the gospel? Why do our hearts so easily wander away from the truth? Why do we focus on things that are really not that important over the things that are ultimately important? I don't know. I don't get it. Um, but we do it. And we do it over and over again. So the challenge for you, I think, and for me, is as we examine this passage together, don't set yourself on the sideline. Put yourself in it. Try to really get into the story and think about how you would have reacted in each of these situations. So scene number one. God moves in an incredible way. I want you to understand, though, the, the context for this is prior to Paul and Barnabas going to this town to preach the gospel, um, they were run out of another town. They were, they were reasoning with Jews and Gentiles. They were preaching the truth about Christ. Some accepted it. Some did not. Some were plotting against them. So they, it got a little hot there for them. So they decided it was time to move on, and they moved on. And we don't know precisely what Paul and Barnabas were saying in scene one here, but we knew that this man who was crippled from birth, who had never walked, we knew that he was listening to them. And I think it's a pretty safe assumption to say that Paul and Barnabas were not talking about themselves, that they were talking about Christ. They were talking about the gospel. 
because that's what they had been doing all throughout the book of Acts up to this point. So that's scene number one. God moves in this incredible way, and you can imagine the shock and the awe of the crowd when that happened. But let's look at scene number two, the crowd reaction. So the crowd sees them do this, and here's what occurs. After the man springs up, the crowd says, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas, Zeus, Paul, Hermes, you know, because he was the chief speaker. So they see this movement, and they immediately put their focus on the two individuals here and now. Surely these two are gods. Sure, and, and, and that's totally ignoring everything Paul and Barnabas had set up to that point. All they focused on is what they saw. They didn't listen to a word of the truth that they were preaching. And they immediately put the focus on these two. And to the point where they even like, get the, chief, the priest of the, of the town to come out and, and start to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And I think a lesson that we can learn from this if we were in the crowd is I think we have a tendency to see and hear what we want to hear. We have a tendency to see and hear what we want to see and what we want to hear. We're so focused sometimes on the here and now, on what we're dealing with presently, what we can hold, feel, and touch in the moment, that oftentimes we don't see the message behind what's really happening. Paul and Barnabas were preaching a much bigger message than what these people wanted to hear and see. They wanted immediate gratification from Paul and Barnabas. They didn't want to hear the truth of what they were preaching. I don't know what Paul was saying, what Barnabas was saying, but I'm positive it wasn't about themselves and it wasn't about elevating themselves. I'm sure it was about the gospel but we have such a need for something or someone to admire so deeply, somebody that we can look up to, something that we can hold dear right now and feel secure in, that we have a tendency to look beyond the ultimate message of the gospel to the present of the here and now. We want role models to be authentic, genuine, better and stronger than we are, and sometimes we hold those role models or, or this image or the this, this security that we want in an individual too tightly. Because that individual, we make them out to be something that they're not. Whether that's a spouse, a friend, some kind of a leader, we do it all the time. And we do it without really realizing it. We put people on a pedestal. We make them into something bigger than what they are And for some reason, it makes us feel better about ourselves when we have the security of a role model like that. And then we demand too much of that individual. You know, we do it with celebrities, we do it with like these social media influencers, we do it with sports and entertainment, but we do it most with the people we love and are closest with. We get caught up in our perception of who they are or who we want them to be and we miss the truth that these people should be pointing to the gospel. They should not be our ultimate security. They should not be our ultimate role model. That's Christ. And if those people are not pointing to the gospel, they are not the role models that we want. If they're pointing to themselves, and if you're finding too much security in them, that you're taking your eyes off the truth of the gospel, 
then you're making the same mistake that this crowd made. Now, it's kind of ridiculous in this passage because the crowd thinks they're gods. None of us are saying that. I can assure you that Julie does not think I'm a god. Um, Even if she does hold me in high esteem, I certainly don't think she is. That's not what we're going to do. But we're going to unconsciously put them in the place of God if we're not careful. We really will do that. We may not offer bulls and goats to them, but if we're not careful, we're going to think that they are the ultimate satisfaction for our lives. We, like the crowd, have a tendency to do this with others. If we put too much faith and too much trust and too much security into any group of individuals or individual in our lives, then we've taken our eyes off the gospel. Julie should point to the truth of the gospel in my life, and she does. Does she offer security, comfort, peace? Absolutely. But she is not my ultimate source of that. Great leaders that I've worked for have offered me guidance, wisdom, counsel, but every single one of them at some point has let me down. Every single one. They are not my ultimate security. Jesus Christ is. And I can promise you, as hard as I work to be a good husband to Julie, I will never, ever take the place of Christ. And I shouldn't. I should always point to Jesus, even in my failures. Paul and Barnabas were there to point to Christ, even though he was doing incredible things through them. They were not the gospel, and the crowd got it wrong. You know, you need to think about this in terms of like, you know, in, in terms of parenting, for example. Um, you know, when, I, when the boys were really young, I felt this anxiety to be like, you know, to wear a cape, to be the superhero. I don't want to be Jacob and Jack's hero. I can't be Jacob and Jack's hero. And here's the reality. The older they get, the more they learn about me. And that's a little scary. So maybe when they were younger, they probably thought I was, I was, I was something special. But the older they get, they get a comprehensive view of who I am, right? Comprehensive means they're going to see the stuff that I don't want them to see and I don't want them to know about me. My desire is that if they have a comprehensive view of me, that that in and of itself will point to the gospel and point to Christ and point to why I shouldn't be their ultimate role model. Jesus Christ should be. And I hope they love me anyway. And the more, the older they get, the more time they spend with me, the more comprehensive that view gets, and that's a little scary. But if I'm not open with them about that, then they're going to have a false sense of security in who I am and what I'm supposed to be in their lives. I should always be pointing to Jesus with my words and through my actions. And if I see too much dependency, then I should step in and tell them that I'm meant to point the way, not to be the way. Does it make sense? So we are not too different from this crowd. A little crazy in the story, but we're not too different. So let's look at scene number three. In scene number three, it's really how Paul and Barnabas respond to the crowd. Paul and Barnabas are mortified, right? The crowd starts worshiping them, and they're just completely caught off guard by this. And they tear their clothes, which is sort of a sign of like, you know, uh, uh, I can't think of the word grief or, or, or disapproval. And they're like, oh my gosh, like this can't be happening. This crowd, they've completely misunderstood what's going on. All right, now let's, 
let's talk about first what Paul and Barnabas didn't do. Because Paul and Barnabas didn't do the very thing that this guy would have done. Now, if this crowd starts worshiping me, I might be leaning back to Barnabas saying, I don't know, man, maybe like 24 hours? Like, the, we, could, we could maybe run this maybe 12, 24 hours, one night, and then, then we could clear it all up tomorrow, right? Maybe we ought to just run with this. The crowd loves us, and, you know, can you imagine what we could get out of this experience? Now, look, before you start crossing your arms and, like, doing the Christian stink eye at me and shaking your head, 50% of you would do the same thing. 49% of you would, but you're just lying to yourself right now. There's like 1% of you that would have responded the way Paul and Barnabas did. Like maybe Michael, and that's about it, <laughs> right? When you're getting the affection and the love and the admiration from others, right? Nobody is bowing down to worship us. Nobody is. And nobody's bringing bulls and goats to sacrifice to us. But man, it feels good, doesn't it? Sure does feel good to have the approval of others feels real good. What do we do to earn the approval and love of others? Have you thought about that when you're getting it? Even when you're not doing anything intentionally to get it, but man, people are filling your bucket, saying nice things about you. Doesn't it feel good? Could you imagine in that moment? This is like an extreme example. These people were worshiping Paul and Barnabas. So maybe you, maybe, you wouldn't, maybe you would have been more like Michael than me, and in the moment you wouldn't have let people worship you, but I'll bet it would have been hard for you to start doing things that you knew that crowd was going to disapprove of because then their affection was going to start moving away from you. Or I'll bet you might have started worrying about, okay, now how do I maintain this? I'm pretty popular right now. Oh, I can see that he really admires me. Do I really, really want to lay down the law and have some consequences here for my son because I really have his approval right now? Am I going to lose that? Um, you know, do I really want to give some hard-to-give feedback to this employee at work? She needs it if she wants to grow, but if I speak truth to her, is she going to stop liking me and thinking I'm a good boss? Oh, man, if I take a stand for Christ right now, are these people going to think I'm weird? Are they going to isolate me? Are they going to even want to continue to have a relationship with me? Man, we, we may not be in the business right now of people worshiping us, but we easily slip into the approval-seeking lane. Saying, doing, acting, or not saying, doing, and acting in a way to get the crowd to approve of us. Whoever the crowd is, I would have, I know me. I know me. It would have been hard. It would have been hard to do what Paul and Barnabas did. It would have been hard on that large scale, and it would have been hard, it's still hard on that lower scale. So many of us form our lives around the affection and approval of others um, that we work ourselves over and over to earn it and maintain it. We take our eyes off the gospel, our ultimate approval, our ultimate acceptance, our ultimate love is in Jesus Christ. And just like the crowd, we shift our focus to the here and now. Who will love me now? Who will give me what I need right now? Yeah, that's where I'll cling to. You know, the gospel tells us that we're loved and accepted far more than we could ever hope or imagine. 
period. Far more than we could ever hope or imagine. But man, it's so hard to believe that. It's hard enough to believe it about Christ, but man, we want to fill it with, with the approval and love of others. Or we do the opposite. We turn and we work, 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 work to prove our value and our worth to God when he's already given it to us. Man, we're hungry for the approval of others. Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes. They rushed into the middle of the crowd and they said, stop. And they did everything they could to take the focus off of them and put it back on the Lord. They said, why are you doing these things? We are just like you. Paul and Barnabas immediately equated themselves with the crowd. I'm no different from you. I'm not better than you. I'm just like you. They basically, in much better language than what I said earlier when I said we're all crazy, they basically said the same thing. We're all messed up like this. I, I'm just like you. This, I'm not the answer. And um, so they rushed out. They said, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. We bring you good news. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. And then they define him. Oh, he made heaven and the earth and the sea. He's always been here. He's been here in past generations. He's been here long before Paul and Barnabas showed up. And he's here right now. And he's going to continue to be here. It's all about him. The focus, the approval, the affection. It's not about us. They, they try to turn the crowd back to the gospel. But for whatever reason, the people continued sacrificing. Because here's the dirty little secret about the crowd. The crowd always wants something in return. Right? They're offering these sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they want something in return from Paul and Barnabas. And the minute the crowd sniffs out anything they disapprove of, how quickly they remove that, that approval. How quickly. And if our ultimate faith and security and love and acceptance is not rooted in the gospel, then whoever the crowd is that we're seeking that approval and that affection from, whoever that crowd is, even though we may have it for a temporary time, it's fleeting because the tide will turn and the crowd will disapprove eventually. And we will continue. The, crowds, the, the crowd has this insatiable desire for more, whatever you want to define the crowd as. More, more, more. Keep us happy. Why do you think social media people get tore up all the time? They're loved one minute and tore up the next. We do that with, with politicians. We do that with, with spiritual leaders. We do that with athletes. Man, we love to build them up. But it's so much fun to tear them down. So if we crave that approval and we don't root it in Jesus Christ and his gospel, then we will suffer the same fate that Paul and Barnabas suffered. Because the crowd turned. Remember I said at the beginning, prior to Paul and Barnabas coming into this town and preaching, they were in a different town, and some people there approved of their message and others did not? Well, guess who shows up? Those who did not. They heard Paul and Barnabas moved on, and they get to the crowd and they start whispering in the crowd's ear. And this, these very people who saw God do this miraculous work these very people who tried to worship Paul and Barnabas and ignored Paul and Barnabas who tried to push them to the truth of the gospel, just like that, 
they turned. Paul and Barnabas stood with the truth. And they turned so dramatically that they almost killed Paul. There is one consistent theme in this roller coaster ride of a story. And this is the human nature, right? This is the human condition. We're up and we're down. We're up and we're down. We're riding high and then we're disappointed. We're riding high and we're disappointed. The one consistent message is the gospel all throughout the story. The gospel was there when the man was healed. The gospel was there when Paul and Barnabas were being worshipped. It didn't change. The gospel was there when Paul and Barnabas were refuting the message of the crowd. And the gospel was there when Paul was being stoned. The one consistent theme throughout a crazy roller coaster ride of emotions. The gospel didn't change. It was just as true in each point of this story. What's the one consistent theme in our lives? The gospel. When we're seeking after the approval of others, the gospel is still true. When others are puffing us up and building us up, the gospel is still true. And when we're in grief and misery and pain and trying to make sense of what in the world just happened, the gospel is still true. We are not truth. We are communicators of ultimate truth. We are not security. We are communicators of the ultimate security. We are not holiness. We are communicators of ultimate holiness. Do we give glimpses of all those things? Yes. We give these imperfect glimpses to those we love and those we interact with, but we are not any of those things, and nobody else in your life is. When the crowd turned, Paul and Barnabas' response didn't match up with the expectations of the crowd. This is who they thought they were. Paul and Barnabas did this, and the crowd said, that doesn't meet our expectation, and now we're going to turn on you. So when we take a stand for the gospel and we don't live up to the expectations of what others want, we have to be prepared for the crowd to turn on us as well. So I'll close with a few final thoughts. Fix your eyes on the gospel. We need to repeatedly preach the gospel to ourselves over and over. My ultimate worth and security is in Jesus Christ. I don't earn my acceptance or my approval from any person and especially not from him. He has freely given it to me. I need to say that to myself every day, multiple times a day. Okay? When it comes to those I admire, those I look up to, I should have mentors. I should have people I look to in time of need. But if I am putting them on a pedestal that they don't belong on, that is not fair to them. And I shouldn't be doing that. And it's damaging me. I should look up to them. I should seek guidance from them. I should seek help. But I should not expect them to be Jesus Christ, who is our ultimate hope. If I am seeking the hope and the approval of others, if I feel myself slipping into that pattern of, oh, but what what will he think? Or what will she feel? Or will they still love me? I need to go right back to the gospel and the truth of that and root myself there. Self-reflection activities. And when we do face circumstances where others let us down or we let them down, 
we need to step back, look at the big picture, respond in grace and love, and remember that the ultimate security, the ultimate hope that we have is in Christ. That's the same today, tomorrow, and it was the same yesterday. The one consistent theme throughout this entire roller coaster of the human condition, the gospel of Christ. We root ourselves there. My friends, that is good news. It is really good news. Amen? Thank you.